Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red and another amazing guest this week, Aya Majzoub from Human Rights Watch. Hello, Aya. Welcome to the show. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. I've been wanting to be on this podcast for a while, <laughs> but mostly for the mug. Um, so I'm <laughs> Great the... mugs, right? <laughs> yeah, Great they're mugs. great. Uh, I'm the Lebanon and Bahrain researcher at Human Rights Watch based here in Beirut. So since the protests started here in Lebanon on October 17, we've been on the ground monitoring the human rights situation. And spoiler alert, there have been many violations. <laughs> For sure, we're going to be talking specifically about that in this episode, about human rights violations during this during the Thawra from October 17 onwards. But first of all, let's go over the news. Ben, tell us what happened this week. Oh, there's, there's a lot of good stuff that happened this week. Um, I mean, obviously the thing that, you know, sort of impacts Lebanon, but has a much wider concern was the deal of the century. Got, it finally got announced this week. It, it's not really a deal, though, because there wasn't two parties. A lot, of course, has been said about this. Supposedly, you know, it's the Trump administration saying, oh, this is the way peace is going to happen, you know, between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. But in reality, uh, it, it seems to be just like this one sided Israeli thing. And everybody's called it out for that. You know, in, internationally, it's just been uh, condemned, you know, by uh, various Arab states and, uh, and Arab people, uh, Palestinians, of course, being the first and foremost among them. And here in Lebanon, it is no exception. Basically, all the political parties are saying, oh, no, no, this doesn't nearly meet what, what we need. Uh, Lebanon as a host country to a lot of Palestinian refugees, you know, it, it doesn't it's not doing it for us. Yeah, I mean, the deal, the, the deal, I mean, it's it's been called the steel of the century and that's the nicest thing we can call it, right? It's basically just for for Lebanese politicians, especially, especially people on the right or the Christian part of, of the political elite, the most important part of this whole deal is whether Palestinian refugees can go back or not. Not based on the, on the, fa- on the principle that, you know, they have the right to return, but rather based on the idea that we reject the naturalization of Palestinians at all costs, right? This has been the, the rhetoric of uh, the Christian right, especially, and now of all political parties, Muslim, Christian, etc., uh, across the spectrum, that, you know, naturalization is like the biggest threat. In any case, that's basically why so many parties were actively condemning the deal and talking about it, whereas usually they don't really make a lot of comments on things like that, uh, on annexation or on uh, Trump's uh, recognition of the Golan Heights, etc. All of these really big things they weren't as provocative as this one because the deal does not mention the right of return well well, it does talk slightly about it right there there is a portion of it that talks about how like there could be some returns of refugees say in lebanon for instance to the future state of palestine not to israel that rules that out but to the future state of palestine but even that would be basically up to Israel, they would get a veto power essentially over it based on their own security considerations. So there is no real right to return it. And it it, it doesn't address the refugee issue and really in any sort of substantive manner. What this means also is that they're not returning to their original communities or geographical areas where they came from. So it's not really return. It's basically return to the country that was created in order to fit what Israel needs the Palestinian state to be surrounded by by Israeli sites and checkpoints from all sides, not having a port or an airport or anything that can be close to, you know, being an independent or sovereign state. But it's contiguous. It's connected by a roads tunnel. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
when Netanyahu was talking about uh, real estate people like being so genius and better than normal human beings and like finding solutions to things. It and was before we saw In his press conference the, with Donald Trump, a ex- noted real estate developer. Exactly. And I didn't know that he was actually talking about like a physical thing that would solve an issue. Uh, I thought it's like a general thing, a metaphor or whatever. And then when I saw the map, And there was a tunnel between the West Bank and Gaza. Instead of like having continuity of Palestinian state, they just decided to have a tunnel between them. It was absolutely like fascinating, really, how ridiculous this is. We hate the shit out of this deal. It's a, it's a horrible apartheid plan. But let's go on. I think the biggest thing that happened this week was the budget, right? Yeah, absolutely. So L- Lebanese politicians are actually getting some shit done. The first, they formed a government last week. And, and then this past week, they've, uh, they passed the budget. They, and they did it in record time, according to Renoir Obeid of the of the Daily Star, uh, just a three hour, just like lightning session. They got together in parliament, I, I guess, you know, made it past the protesters first off. And then uh, Nabi Berri actually cited that in saying like, oh, no, no I, I want to get this done very quickly. Usually these things take two or three days, but this was done in one session, three hours, bam, it passed. With 49 votes uh, voting for it, 13 against, uh, and I believe eight ab- abstentions. So the Kataib and the Lebanese forces boycotted the session. Future, at least part of their bloc, arrived and attended the session, but they voted against it. Uh, and the PSP of Walid Jumblat abstained. They, they also came, but they, they didn't vote. So, so this is actually, I mean, I mean, it's good. It came in under the wire. Politicians had to get this done before the end of the month. Constitutionally, they did do that. There, but there are these other considerations, uh, constitutional considerations. So this was a budget document that was passed by a cabinet that is resigned and gone, right? And so theoretically, maybe it needs to actually go back to the new cabinet. But uh, in order for the new cabinet to endorse it, it would, the new cabinet would actually need to get a vote of confidence first. And it seems that like they're just not going to go through with all this. They're just going to say, okay, this is this budget is finished. Uh, we're going to put it in the books. And, and maybe that would open it up to some sort of uh, challenge at the Constitutional Council. But uh, it seems as though they're just going to push forward it, uh, with it rather than go and have these delays with the new government and all of that stuff. Just say, okay, we've done this. We've done our constitutional duty. Yeah, I mean, the the problem, the constitutional problem is that there are two articles that contradict each other because they both apply to this situation and each of them uh, states something different. One of them is Article 69, which says that when a government is formed, the parliament starts an exceptional session where the sole purpose of of, of the session is to give confidence to the or to discuss the inaugural, uh, inauguration statement of the government and to give it confidence or not. So this session is not constitutional because the parliament is enacting a budget before act, voting on the confidence. On the other hand, what Berry was saying, how Berry was defending calling for the session is uh, based on Article 32, which says that after October, Parliament is in a normal session where no law can be passed before the budget. So he's saying the Constitution says that we have to pass the budget. We have had, like, we've been forced to, by the Constitution, to pass the budget for the last few months. And this is the first opportunity we got, so we got to do it now. So they both, both cases apply, but the two contradict each other. This is the constitutional kind of dilemma. But the bottom line is not really about the Constitution, but more about the politics. How is it okay for uh, a government to come after an uprising and say, look, we're going to change our economic and monetary policies and bring in like new minds to make new policies and to fix the situation and then pass the exact same budget 
that was passed by the government that was overthrown by the protesters in the streets. So it's the most like it's it directly contradicts everything that Hassan Diab was saying in his first speech as prime minister that you know there there's going to be any change in economic policy because the budget is literally the most important thing that the cabinet has in a year you know it's called executive authority because it just executes the things that are given to it and most the most important thing is the budget you know the allocation of funds so it's a, it's, a, it's just a shame that there's not even an attempt to pretend that there is a different kind of uh, paradigm and uh, this was confirmed by Hassan Diab himself in the session when he was asked uh, whether he will just approve the budget uh, whether they're going with this budget as is and he said of course because otherwise I wouldn't be in this session in the first place yeah and, and while it, it's true that cabinet did not get a chance to sort of like revise things the, the budget committee of parliament actually did so they've been working on this Ibrahim Kanaan the uh, Metin MP who heads that committee has been you know out there talking to the press um, and and he said you know so there there have been some revisions right um, and one of those revisions is just according to Kanaan uh, you know, the, the finance minister came back and said, hey, we're not getting the revenues that we thought we were going to get, because obviously we're not, we're in the middle of a financial crisis right now, right? And so you, you would think that would lead to like a, a much larger budget deficit um, somehow on paper. And I haven't quite figured this out. Uh, they've they've managed to limit it to five to 6% of GDP, uh, the, the deficit. If you include EDL, that ups it to about 7% realistically of GDP. But that first off is just on paper. And then second off, that doesn't take into consideration what happens if there is a significant contraction in GDP, which I think uh, most economists are expecting. And, and so it, it seems as though uh, they're they're still trying to play this austerity game, but they're they're fighting sort of a losing battle on this front, uh, especially when you look at look at it in terms of percentage of GDP. And, and that's just not something that they have any uh, realistic uh, immediate control over. And another thing that Kanaan said that we should be paying attention to is that he said we met with the governor of the central bank and we met with the private ba- the commercial banks concerning what should be done to you know reduce the deficit because Hariri's reform paper before he resigned was saying that there are um, around 3.3 billion dollars that were coming from the central bank and the commercial banks to uh, basically close the deficit of this year. And then we discovered that it was 400 million coming from the commercial banks, only 400 million out of the 3.3 billion. And the rest, the 2.9 billion are coming from the central bank. So Kanaan said they met with both and the and the central bank said they're still committed to the money they're paying, the $2.9 billion. But the uh, commercial bank said they were concerned they couldn't make it. They couldn't make that payment. And that's very interesting because like this is still like one of the very minor measures that can be taken to take back some money from the banks and all of the economic measures that that we've been discussing entail the banks paying money to the state in one way or another in form of taxation, in form of returning the money that they made out of financial engineering in terms of debt restructuring, etc. And if they can't pay these 600 million, then there's a really big problem that we're going to be facing. (laughs) Not even dollars. In lira, lira. of course, yeah. (laughs) And speaking of the lira, we're, we're now tracking three prices. Uh, we've got the official rate, 1507.5, the rate at the exchange houses that they agreed to exchange at, which is 2000 to the dollar. And then there's the black market rate, the, the real rate, which is most recently as of Friday around 21 to 2200, according to LebaneseLira.org. 
now as, as far as this goes obviously that last one the black market rate that is the real rate the the official rate is uh, severely limited uh, you you can't as a private citizen or a company go in and actually get that in most cases at, at a bank and exchanges really from from uh, the reports I've been hearing that 2000 rate is just for buying dollars so if you want to sell dollars at a low rate then exchange shops are very happy to give you 2000 for it from what I've heard but they're not going to go the other way if you want to get dollars from them they're not going to sell them at 2000 and, and so that that means that what is the real rate well it's the black market rate more lira arrived at the airport this week the I, I just want to make a note of this because the currency in circulation outside of BDL, like basically the paper money that people have in their in their grubby hands, has doubled since July. It was about six trillion lira. We're, we're talking just in lira here, right? Not dollars. It was about six trillion lira as of July of last year, and now as of the end of January. It's uh, just a whisker under 12 trillion lira, according to BDL's latest uh, statement. So th- this just means that people are taking money out, right? They are, they are hoarding money. And there's, it's not just dollars. They're taking lira out as well. And the central bank is uh, responding to this by ordering more money, more cash that keeps arriving at the airport, which then they then distribute. Despite all this, though, um, Red Sleme is still like basically on the happy talk tour. He still says, you know, uh, Lira is going to return to 1500. Deposits are safe in banks. I mean, obviously, if he said anything else, it would cause mayhem. So on the one hand, I sort of understand why he says it. Uh, but on the other hand, it's sort of, you know, manifestly false. He also said that they, uh, he, he gave an interview to uh, France uh, 24 this past week, and he said that Lebanon can sort of restart with foreign aid. Which is, it, it seems to be the direction that a lot of the policymakers are looking at. We've got a lot of meetings that have gone on between high-ranking Lebanese officials and like uh, IMF, World Bank, uh, those types of people. I mean, it, it seems as though they're they're asking for like four or five billion dollars right now, which is a lot of money just to basically finance the import of necessary things, you know, like medicine and, and wheat and and fuel, stuff like that. As, as far as that goes, just just that starting number, that four to five billion dollars for basic necessities, to me that really sort of freaks me out because because this is a, a really 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 astonishingly large number uh, for for something that is very very basic, and it, it tells me that things are not quite as safe and happy as what policymakers say publicly. And that's been, I think, one of the biggest problems of, of the way that the government has handled the economic crisis. There has been absolutely no transparency by the central bank or by mm-hmm. the government in communicating, you know, where are we financially? So some people say that the capital controls imposed by the banks are um, necessary, but we don't actually know how much money the bank has. We don't know if they're being really cautious by giving us this $200 a month or are they really running out of money? And this lack of transparency is really one of the main reasons that the gov- that the people have had no trust in the government's handling of the financial crisis. So when Riyad Saleh comes out and says the lira is going to go back to 1500, well, you know, who who actually believes that, especially when the finance minister said there's exact no hope opposite. of the min- of yeah. the uh, you know lira going back to 1500 per dollar. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's also important to note, it, it's not just Salemi out there saying this stuff. Ghazi Wesni, the, the new finance minister, uh, Salim Sfer, the head of the Association of Banks in Lebanon and the chairman of Bank of Beirut, they're, they're all saying, you know, like, no haircut on deposits. Everything's fine. No worries. And and uh, also this past week, we, we did have an agreement sort of between the banks and BDL talking about, I, I guess, what what was uh, spun as a sort of lifting of capital controls. I don't know if that's really the case, though. At their Wednesday meeting, ABL and BDL agreed on a few things, that a few things would happen. One of those is that limits on uh, Lira withdrawals would be capped at $25 million, uh, which I don't know if that's really raising the limit or not. I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a big raise anyway, because at my bank, it was uh, already something around 20. So five more million uh, liras a month is nothing in the, during this time. So I don't know if if some banks had much lower limits. But anyway, they didn't lift any of the limits on the dollar uh, withdrawals, which is what people are mostly suffering from. Right, right, right. Um, and, and they said transfers to outside could be allowed uh, up to $50,000 per year if if there's like a necessary personal circumstance that, that requires this, or uh, also transfers abroad for like the import of raw materials for industry and agriculture. Right. And, and there were there were several other uh, parts of this agreement that that happened between uh, the, Association of, uh, the Association of Banks and Riyad Saleme. But the the idea was that these these measures would be put actually into like codified into uh, an order from Riyadh Salame. So finally, we would see because the capital controls so far have been informal, uh, just set by the banks, right? But at very least, this the lira one would then at some point in the future come down from BDL itself and therefore be legally binding. So all of these things are expected to be the content of several decisions by the central bank communicated as um, in form of circulars soon. This was the deal. This is how the, what the statement said. But one thing to be um, cautious about is uh, the possibility of imposing a measure whereby uh, people who have their salaries in dollars cannot anymore withdraw them in dollars and have to withdraw them in Lebanese pounds. Uh, right now, they can withdraw them like $200 a week or depending on the bank, 150 300 200 etc. If this stops and we are forced to get them in Lebanese pounds, this means that it's basically a haircut on, on salaries. Because you're getting it at the official bank rate, 1507, right? Exactly, instead of the uh, market rate, which is much higher than that. So you're basically losing 35 or 30% of your the value of the real value of your money when you take it uh, out, which is one of the things that are expected to be done, but it would be really a big uh, escalation. Um, but I think the scariest thing about this statement from um, the Association of Banks is that it says that the central bank will be issuing these circulars to make official the the capital control measures that the banks are already doing. And uh, if that actually takes place, if the bank, if the central banks mentions in its circulars the capital controls on the dollars, it means that this whole bullshit that Riyad Salemi was sa- talking about for for like I don't know how long, for like two three months, saying, "Oh, we can't do anything without a law from the parliament. Anything related to capital controls is just like um, a means of escaping his, his responsibility because he doesn't want to do a policy that does not go in line with the interests of the banks. That just that's it. If the central bank now imposes any kind of capital controls, it means that he's been lying to us for the last few months." Yeah, right. And, and obviously, the, the other thing that happened this week, the protests continued. We did have something interesting happen. I believe it was Tuesday. Security forces decided, oh, we're going to open the roads in Martyr Square. Or they, they, they tried to, right? But that uh, it, it didn't quite work. 
the protesters issued calls for uh, people to go down and, and uh, block off the squares again. They did. So the roads, uh, as of now, they're still closed, but they're not closed by security. They're just closed by the protesters. I actually disagreed initially with the security forces cordoning off the area and themselves putting barricades around central Beirut and determining who can go in and out of the space. You know, part of the reason the first few days were successful is because, you know, there were no barriers at the time, yet we saw the biggest numbers. People, just by virtue of being there, blocked the street. There was no need for, you know, the army or the ISF to have like a very strong security presence in the area to cordon off the area and then to be the arbiters of who can come in and searching people as they're coming in and out of the space. So to me, the, you know, mere fact of the security forces removing the barriers you know, wasn't, I understand why they did it. And it was, you know, not a innocent move. But, you know, I think the protesters should focus less on keeping the area cordon off and more on just trying to mobilize greater numbers onto the streets in a way that would then de facto block the roads off again. Right, right. Because we've seen those numbers, they, they have been dwindling. And there also has been, in, in addition to this move by the security forces, there have been a whole lot of other moves by the security forces. And I think that this is one of the, the to sort of tap de, uh, tamp down on the protests. And, and this is why we we are so happy that you're here to sort of walk us through some of these things, because there has been this. I mean, I, I don't think it is an exaggeration to call it sort of like a campaign of intimidation uh, against Absolutely. protesters in certain cases by certain elements of the security forces. Absolutely. Um, there have been many, many instances of excessive use of force by the security forces against demonstrators, most of whom have been peaceful. But I will also say, you know, some of the arguments that we've been hearing, particularly in the last few weeks, is that as the protesters are becoming more violent, the security forces then have a right to become more violent in response. And that's actually not true. There is absolutely no excuse for unlawful use of riot control equipments and weapons by the riot police or any other member of the security forces, no matter what the protesters themselves were doing. So, for example, the use of tear gas. So, yes, tear gas is can be a legitimate method of riot control and can be a legitimate way to disperse protests. However, there is absolutely no excuse for firing large amounts of tear gas in confined spaces or in a mosque, as we saw a couple of uh, weeks ago. There's no excuse for firing tear gas canisters directly at protesters' heads, causing very serious injuries. I mean, we're very lucky that nobody has yet died from those injuries. In Aida, at least eight protesters died because tear gas canisters hit their head. So international standards are very clear that you should fire tear gas up into the air so that it explodes up in the air and then falls down without, co- you know, without the impact of the tear gas canister causing any harm. Um, so that's, you know, there's no, there, no matter what the protesters were doing, there's zero excuse for firing tear gas canisters at people's heads. And I mean, I was present at the protests. We saw live footage of the protests showing very clearly that security forces were aiming at people's heads. And that's tear gas. And then we have the more escalated form of, uh, of action, which is rubber bullets uh, that have been used and shot directly at people. And one of the protests I was at uh, on a Saturday when things escalated, uh, rubber bullets were being shot like from a 30 meters distance directly at us without any kind of reason or any any excuse because no one was shooting anything at the police 
maybe th- some people were throwing rocks, but the police was hundreds of meters apart, uh, away. We just had a couple of trucks um, with water cannons that were closer. So we were no one was kind of putting any member of the security forces in danger in the first place. And this sneaky bastard from the riot police comes from behind the wall with with this with the uh, the rubber bullets and he starts shooting at people directly at us directly. So it was really insane. And and at least two people so far have permanently lost sight in one of their eyes. Um, you probably saw the campaign on social media Thawratan Ayunakum, which was uh, kind of in solidarity with these people, saying like the revolution will be the you, you, the eye that you lost and. Uh, will be looking, will be seeing in the future to continue the struggle, etc. Uh, so what are rubber bullets supposed to be about? Like, is it legal to use them according to these international standards? Or So first of all, rubber bullets is just a fancy way of saying steel bullets that are coated in rubber. So rubber bullets make them sound much more innocent or tame than they it's actually like are. It's like a Nerf gun or something, right? Like <laughs> they that's, can that's cause what it sounds very like. Serious, they can cause very serious damage. It's not a game. And we've also observed security forces using these rubber bullets in ways that, you know, violate international law and international standards. So rubber bullets can't be used as a crowd dispersal method at random. It has to be used directly against a person who is causing or, you know, having an imminent threat of violence to the law enforcement official or to another member of the public. And even then, they should only be fired at people's lower abdomens or at their legs. Because firing rubber bullets at people's upper bodies, necks, uh, and faces can cause very, very serious damage that may be lethal. But, you know, again, from the footage that we saw from the protests that I observed, security forces were randomly just firing rubber bullets as if they were, it was a laser gun. And they were firing it at close range. They were firing it at people who were already running away and who posed no danger. All of that constitutes unlawful use of force by the security forces. Um, and the other kind of unlawful use of force that we documented is the use of batons. So we've all seen videos of uh, riot police running after people, beating them with batons on their backs, on their heads, and that's obviously illegal. Batons are supposed to be a type of self-defense for uh, members of law enforcement. So they can be used either if a person is uh, coming at them violently and threatening to attack them, or if they're trying to arrest somebody who was uh, caught in the act of committing a crime and that person is resisting violently. But even then, they can't be beating people on their necks and on their heads in the ways that we saw during the protests. And one of the things we saw is that whenever there's, a, there's like, for example, some um, petty attacks on security forces like fireworks or little rocks or water bottles, there's a certain moment where the security forces make a decision to attack. It's every protest that I have ever seen since 2011. There's a moment where security forces decide to go in. And this moment is not based on like some serious observation of who is throwing what. It's basically the moment where people who are young and fast and far get away. And people who are close or not being able to escape or don't know what the fuck is happening and just stuck near the security forces get beaten up by the batons, as you're saying, or bottoms of rifles or whatever. And this is what we saw, for example, in one of the uh, famous instance, uh, incidents uh, recently in uh, near Sakant Lahalo, uh, the police station in Marlia Street, uh, where protesters were basically having a demonstration uh, requesting the demanding the release of their comrades and security forces at a certain point started just attacking people they beat people up with these batons and they dragged them literally dragged them on the asphalt inside the police station while beating them up at the same time right this is documented like we saw it on footage 
And this is the thing, like security forces are not targeting specific people when they start, you know, these <laughs> crackdowns during protests. Sometimes, in many cases, they arrested uh, workers who happened to be nearby, right? In Hamra, it happened, yeah. I think, uh, during the protests against the banks. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen, you know, I've observed several protests where we've seen the riot police kind of running towards crowds and starting to arrest people and as you mentioned they're arbitrarily arresting the first person that they can get their hands on they're not necessarily going after the people who they've seen be violent or the people they've seen throw rocks or other things at security forces it's literally just a game of which person can we most easily get and drag back and that can constitute arbitrary detention because you're not catching anybody in the act of committing a crime. You're just arresting them because they happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, and a lot of the arrests that I've witnessed and that we've seen footage of have been very, very violent. So scenes of, you know, five or six riot police uh, guys with their baton just beating a person who's already on the ground and not resisting arrest. There's absolutely no excuse for that kind of behavior. And we've seen it repeat over and over and over again without any uh, accountability or any accountability measures that at least we're aware of. Despite repeated promises by the security forces and by the former Minister of Interior that those you know officers who have been seen or there's evidence against who have been beating up protesters or using excessive force against protesters will be held accountable. And I think another trend that we've witnessed recently that's been incredibly worrying is also the attack on media workers media workers that are doing their job that are there's no even excuse that, that we didn't know that they were media workers i mean we saw people fe- being beaten up on live television two al jadid tv crews were beaten up they were wearing you know they had the al jadid microphones they had the cameraman they were standing in the press area yet they were specifically targeted for attack and there was a night in front of the al police station i believe it was january 15th when at least eight media workers were directly targeted and attacked and at least three of them were detained for short periods of time and inside the hello station after they arrested many people i don't know if it was the same day or not we had this video that went viral about showing security forces members uh, attacking beating people up while they're bringing them down from the truck mm-hmm. uh, that they were transported in which also the police acknowledged as a real video and said that they will hold officers accountable but we have like serious allegations about torture and detention. And yes. this is maybe also one of the worst kind of violations because you're already detained and you're being interrogated. And then the torture is just like an extra layer of, of pain inflicted. We had uh, many kinds of torture. B- different people told uh, stories about like what kind of torture, torture they were subjected to. Uh, in one case, it was um, uh, in form of, I found it interesting, it was from form of mock execution, uh, making the detainees feel as if or think that they will be executed by being blindfolded, uh, put outside. And they heard the, like a machine gun being cocked or reloaded right in front of them. Uh, as if they're going to be shot uh, it's it's taking like it's been taken to a different level right and we have numbers now released just now while before just before we started recording by the um, by the lawyers committee for defense of protesters right yeah so literally you know maybe less than an hour ago the lawyers committee for the defense of protesters released their their statistics um they said that between 17 october and 31 january 906 protesters were arrested and of them 49 were minors at the time of the arrest 
seven of those individuals still remain in detention to this day. And they also said that they documented 194 cases of uh, detainees who were subjected to violence, either during the arrest, the arrest process, or while they were in detention. And of course, these figures are very, very concerning, particularly the numbers on the, you know, the amount of people who were subjected to violence during their arrest and detention. Mm. And this isn't something new. I mean, as Human Rights Watch, we've documented abuse uh, by security forces in police stations and other places of detention, some of which amount to to torture. And we've over the years published several reports about these cases of torture. One of our, you know, one case that we investigated led to the death of a detainee last year, Hassan Adia. Yet, despite, you know, credible allegations of torture, and despite us raising these allegations of torture with the public prosecutor, the security agencies, the judiciary, we've seen zero accountability. And this culture of impunity has allowed security forces to feel like they can continue abusing people because there are no repercussions. Adding to all of that, we saw also two um, testimonies by women saying that they were threatened with rape. One of them, actually a friend of mine, and she was told they will rape you inside by the security forces that were uh, arresting her. So it's basically a game of psychological warfare as well as like direct physical violence. Mm-hmm. It's uh, as Ben was saying, it's really a tactic of or a strategy of intimidation that has so many uh, tools in it. Right, but just to clarify also that your threats of physical violence and sexual abuse are also forms of torture. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you mentioned the former minister a minute ago. You actually had a chance to sit down with her and and talk through a lot of these concerns. Rail Hassan, uh, what what did she what did she say? say when you met her. So Rael Hassan actually requested a meeting with Human Rights Watch uh, after a particularly violent weekend in Beirut, December 14 and 15, uh, where we saw you know, a huge escalation in violence by members of, of the security forces against protesters. And during the meeting, she did admit that there were mistakes that happened. She admitted that the levels of violence that we saw were unacceptable. And while not trying to justify them, she explained them by saying that the security forces were under a lot of pressure. They'd been on you know, full combat readiness for a really long time, that they were tired, you know, and we've seen her repeat those claims over and over again. And of course, that doesn't justify the levels of violence that we saw. But I think it comes down to two things, training and accountability. So on the training part, uh, she mentioned that the commanders of the riot police did have training on how to deploy um, riot control equipment, but that they hadn't yet had a chance to mainstream the training to all members of the riot police. And so you had these guys who were shooting tear gas and rubber bullets who did not have training on when or how to use those equipment. And I think that contributed to a lot of the abuses. And the other side of that coin is accountability. So she promised that after the events of that weekend that she would launch an investigation into what happened and that members of the security forces would be held accountable. But what we tried to say is we've constantly been hearing about security forces or the Ministry of Interior or Justice launching investigations that seemingly never go anywhere. Uh, And we don't know as members of the public whether those investigations actually happened, whether they were actually transparent and they were independent. and whether anybody was held accountable. So what we were trying to push for were that these investigations should be made public because for, you know, for any member of the public to have trust in the security forces and in the Ministry of Interior, they need to see that somebody has been held accountable for the crimes that they've committed against protesters. And under international law, people have a 
right to compensation if they have been victims of the unlawful use of force by security forces. Well, that would just be a drain on the Lebanese treasury. Of course, they're not going <laughs> to agree to that. I mean, they are legally obligated to it, though. It's not. It's it's a violation not to provide compensation for victims of right. uh, unlawful use of force. But yes, right. if you look at the riot police's behavior, it hasn't been on defensive. It's been on defensive in specific circumstances, like on specific days. You see that they are on defensive and they don't want to attack. But on so many instances, especially every Saturday, what they do is actually they decide to empty all of downtown from protesters. It's a political decision that is made and it's. It's a security decision that's implemented in a violent way with through a lot of tear gas. That Saturday that I was talking about with all the rubber bullets and the tear gas, it was basically just like an insane amount that they needed to use to clear the whole area. So when you go on the offensive and then people started start throwing rocks at you and things like that, I mean, what do you expect? Like you're literally attacking them from one square to another, following them up to the end of this whole area that is considered the protest area, taking them uh, to the edge. The last protest and you were there as well right uh, they kicked us out and then the army kind of kept pushing us till almost mm-hmm. reaching Dawra like reaching Marm Khail which is literally like like a 20 minute walk the army kept like telling us no no you can't um, go in any of these streets you just have to go on the highway and they made like hundreds of people just walk on the highway as much as far away as they can from the protest square because they know if people can come back through Jemaize or through any of these area nearby streets they might come back to the protest square so it's not a matter of like uh, what the right police is using to control crowds it's basically the implementing a political decision to ban any demonstrations as long as there is the excuse of like a violence happening or riots happening right and that of course violates a different right which is the right to freedom of assembly Definitely, that's what I mean. Like this, it's an attack on on our basic right of of protest when we're there that they're uh, implementing. It's not just basically dispersing us when we're being violent or whatever. Can Can I ask a quick side question that some of our listeners may be wondering? You You mentioned you know all of these abuses that that the security forces have been engaged in. Rail Hassan saying, "Oh, it's because of a lack of training." All of this stuff. How should security forces respond when they are getting shot at with fireworks and rocks and stuff like that? What is what is the legally permissible or the correct thing to do in a riot control, a professional riot, an internationally, you know, international law compliance situation? That's a great question. And that has been kind of the justification of the security forces that were under attack. And these are pictures of our forces who have been injured and therefore they responded. They had to respond. First of all, assaulting an officer is a crime. And so, you know, under the law, security forces can arrest an individual who, who is you know being violent towards them. Uh, and they can then transport them to a detention facility where they're interrogated, charged, and then appear before a court. The problem isn't, you know, with that process. It's with the amount of force that security forces have been deploying against people. So we've noticed that the security forces response hasn't been proportionate. And in some cases, it hasn't been necessary. So having a few violent protesters in what is otherwise an overwhelmingly peaceful crowd doesn't justify using huge amounts of force against all of those people. So, you know, when a crowd starts becoming violent, you can use tear gas, but the use of tear gas should be proportionate and necessary to achieve the legitimate aim, which is to, you know, make the protests not violent or, you know, move people away from security forces so that they couldn't pose a threat to the security forces or couldn't destroy public property, whatever the legitimate end is. 
But what we saw really went above and beyond what was necessary or legitimate. So they, you know, as we talked about a bit before, they just improperly used riot control equipment. They improperly used tear gas, rubber bullets, their batons. Uh, and, and, you know, and they weren't discriminating between people who were violent versus people who were just at the protest chanting and were very, very peaceful. They just um, used, you know, force against everybody. And that's illegal under both Lebanese law and international law. So if you're like, let's say you have a brother or a son or somebody who is in this line of ISF officers or whatever, they should have their shield up or so they're, they're getting, you know, hit with, you know, fireworks or something like that. Use your shield, use tear gas to disperse the crowd. But then only if you've got some kamikaze coming at you, looking at looking to do you bodily harm, do you actually pull out the baton or, and the or something, bullets. something exactly. like that. Does exactly. that? Do I understand that right? Yes. Okay. And we've seen all of this violence from security forces from day one, right? From October 17, we've been seeing kind of very similar um, tactics and tools. But recently, we've been seeing more targeting of individuals, um, not only based on what they do in the squares or uh, what they throw at police officers at all. It's also based on what they write on Facebook. So w- what's up with that? Have you been like looking at these, these cases? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because this arrest of protesters and demonstrators and activists who are expressing their opinion in peaceful ways has been one of the ways that politicians over the last few years have tried to silence criticism. So we just released a big report in November about the way that politicians, other public officials, religious institutions, banks uh, have been using Lebanon's criminal defamation laws to go after their critics. So defamation laws exist in almost all countries and they're laws that are supposed to protect, protect you if you feel like your reputation has been unfairly damaged. But in Lebanon, for a variety of reasons, the law doesn't uh, doesn't comply with international law. So first of all, the law is criminal, which means that you can be arrested by a security agency, interrogated by a security agency, and then even sentenced to jail for something that you said online for, for peaceful speech. And one of the very worrying findings of our research is that this pace of prosecutions for peaceful speech using Lebanon's criminal defamation laws really increased after the 2015 protests. So the 2015 protests, again, we saw mass mobilization, people going down to the streets to protest corruption and mismanagement of public funds. And after that, you had the Ustink movement, and then you had the Beirut Medinati movement. So there were a lot of kind of, you know, they really showed that people were very frustrated with the political establishment, and they were starting to develop other alternatives. And so in response to that, instead of addressing corruption and addressing mismanagement of public funds, what we saw public officials do is try to silence criticism against them. So we documented that between 2015 and 2018, the number of cases uh, of defamation cases brought against individuals increased by 325%. Oof. So that's a pretty huge increase. Uh, and already during the, you know, since October 17, we have seen that politicians and public officials and banks uh, have resorted to the same tactics. So we've documented that at least uh, two heads of political parties have filed defamation lawsuits against publications who had been accusing them of corruption. We've seen, you know, prominent activists be called in for investigation. We've seen uh, demonstrators be called in for investigation. And this is just a continuation of these intimidation tactics that 
that politicians and the political establishment used after 2015 to try, try to silence criticism. Um, so I think we should be very kind of cognizant of the fact that this is a tool that will be deployed by the political establishment who are going to be unwilling to give up power. Uh, and so one of the, our main advocacy goals uh, has been to try to reform the criminal defamation laws in Lebanon. So we've been trying to engage with parliamentarians uh, to amend the existing defamation provisions so that they're civil, not criminal, which would mean that you know the public prosecutor can't on his own initiate a case. An individual as a private citizen can choose to file a lawsuit against somebody, but because it's civil, not criminal, there's no calling in to the security agency for investigation. There's no threat of prison time. So all of these kind of criminal sanctions are removed from the process and it just becomes a civil dispute between two people. Yeah, and the thing uh, about targeting individuals like um, for Facebook posts or for taking part in protests under suspicion of like, you know, um, taking part in a riot or whatever is that um, it's happening after the protest in a probably in a time where you think that you're safe, uh, it's all okay, you, you haven't been arrested for no reason while in the protest. And then they call you up and, I don't know, it might be the military intelligence, it might be the information branch of the ISF, it might be, I don't know who. And they tell you, come to our office for interrogation. And this is basically the, the most important part of it, is also psychological warfare, in my opinion, because it's it's uh, it's really intimidating and makes everyone be very concerned about what they do, what they say, where they go, um, whether they take part in protests or not. So when when recently they've been targeting organizers and people who have some sort of influence, but not the the public figures that are very famous, it's clear that this is the kind of direction they're taking. This is the purpose of this uh, tactic. But I just want to end this like because we have to wrap up, and I just want to. I put this in a political kind of context, the whole thing. We have a new government, and since uh, Hassan Diab has been nominated, and since, you know, the government has been formed officially, we've seen more, not less, uh, use of, you know, a heavy hand by security forces in the streets. Uh, We've seen more, you know, uh, people getting uh, these calls that we're talking about. So it's just... To me, it's clear that this government is not coming with any softer approach. You see, you go to Riyadh Salah, even physically, like in terms of the urban space, you go to Riyadh Salah and you see that the square is now like maybe 40% smaller or 30% smaller because all of these huge concrete walls have been erected and have been pushed inside to make as little room as possible for protesters to be in. And what this means is that the government needs to basically is looking for is or is aiming to end the movement. The thing about the squares being blocked or not that we were talking about earlier is also part of it. They want to bring business as usual back to downtown because it's a very important part of ending the revolution scene in Beirut. It's basically opening the roads for cars to pass and then saying, oh, these parking lots, guys, they need them to, you know, go to work in their offices in downtown. And then they bring in the private owners of these uh, parking lots and they start kicking out out and um, maybe taking away the the tents that we're using as protesters etc so there's this need to uh, impose a security situation where uh, people can't use the street to oppose the agenda of the government and why this is so important is that when you're in a moment of economic crisis and uh, when the government wants to pass an austerity budget around the world you see the same thing whenever an austerity a series of austerity budgets whenever a neoliberal agenda needs to be put in place in order to say to 
quote-unquote save the economy uh, in a time of deep crisis, you suddenly see security forces being deployed, more violence by the state, because it's one project. It's basically, if you allow popular the popular uprising or the the people to to face your agenda, to, to basically fight against your agenda in the streets, then you can't pass it uh, with the legitimacy that you're trying to give it. Especially when, you know, you're talking about reforms. Uh, especially when you're saying, you know, these are measures that are recommended by the IMF or the World Bank and all the credibility that these two institutions supposedly have. So you have, you know, the need for a security crackdown to pass this neoliberal agenda more or less around the world. And now we're just seeing it in Lebanon in the clearest form. That's what I think. I don't know what you guys think about it, but it's like it's so frustrating that we're seeing it so clearly after we've read about it in books happening like in so many countries. Absolutely. And one of the areas of future research for us in Human Rights Watch is looking at how an austerity budget is going to impact the most marginalized communities, especially in a place like Lebanon, where there is a complete absence of a social uh, or welfare safety net. Uh, and so, you know, in you know, for the next couple of months, our agenda will be both engaging with the government, but also engaging with the IM and the World Bank to try to give them our recommendations on what are some of the human rights implications of an austerity budget and of the measures that they're going to be recommending to the Lebanese government and how can we try to soften the blow on the most impoverished communities and the communities that are already suffering the most. This is amazing. Like bringing human rights back to a definition that includes socioeconomic rights is so important because Absolutely. for a long time Absolutely. this was the main critique of human rights organizations, right? That they were too concerned with the political and civil rights and less concerned with the socioeconomic rights, which makes them always biased towards capitalistic countries, mm-hmm. uh, even if they have a very bad social situations. Um, but like the, uh, if you're very poor, that's quite that's quite violent that's quite you know a violation of your dignity so absolutely and our work in Lebanon has really tried to branch out into more social and economic rights Mm -hmm. so for example we've done work on the impact of the mismanagement of waste on people's health Uh, we've done work on the impact of the economic and financial crisis on the health sector and people's access to adequate health care so this is definitely a priority for our work here and it's something that we're going to continue working on uh, over the next few months especially at like such a critical time uh, for Lebanon during this economic crisis. Well, it sounds fascinating. We'll definitely keep our eyes out for, for everything coming out uh, from you guys. Uh, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank it's you. Been, it's yeah. been incredible. I've learned a whole lot uh, over the past hour or so. And, uh, and as for us, uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, but until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Ayam Rasoub. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.